What's happening in the canine industry? For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart. I'm joined in studio today by my co-host, Glenn Cook. And today we have the special honor and privilege of having in studio with us, Mr. Brent Dry to my left. Hey, thanks, Pat. Who has come all the way up from Melbourne, Brent Dry from the Canine Company. And fresh off a plane, jet lagged, tired, and (laughs) scared of what he's going to say. Possibly Uh, Randy. (laughs) Mr. Sean Edwards, who's just coming out to give us a PSA training seminar weekend before he judges our trial next weekend. Nice, man. Hello. Hey, Sean. Welcome back. So we've had a full interview with you and Janet, and we've impromptu sort of just thrown a microphone straight in front of Sean's face (laughs) without really telling him what's going on. So this is like a bit ad lib today. This is a, we've had a few listeners that have asked us the same question. So hopefully as a panel, we're going to talk about it. We've got Brent on the show today. We're going to actually interview Brent and Kat together as a, a company and as people on the podcast. But Brent, because he's up here at the moment for the PSA thing, we're not directly interviewing Brent today about his story or anything like that because we're going to do it collectively with Kat. And if you don't know Brent, what are you doing? I know. Where where have you been? Seriously. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, seriously, you need to lift some rocks. (laughs) All right. So the question that we've been asked, and as I said, it's been asked of separate people in situations, is how do I raise a puppy for the certain application that I'm doing? So we've, all of us in the room have raised dogs before. And Brent said to me just before we started this, he goes, well, I'm not really, it's not like I'm a breeder and I've raised like heaps of puppies or anything like that, but he's had a story to tell. So I might throw to Brent straight away because you had a struggle with Zia when you first got her, who is Brent's Mal, affectionately known as Puppy, which is what pretty much everybody knows her as these days. But I just kind of laughed when you said that because I was like, who's Zia? You got his dog's name wrong, you idiot. (laughs) Zia? Yeah, it is. It's Zia. Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. You thought it was Puppy. So let's throw to you and talk about the origins of Zia when you first got her and let's sort of hit about modern day. It's in a nutshell, like we, you know, we're not going to do a full show on Zia, but let's do a bit of a a discussion and points on and what happened in your experience in raising her. I'm good for 20 minutes, aren't I? Perfect. Cool. So, (laughs) sorry, Pat. I'm starting the clock. (laughs) So yeah, puppy's three now. Yep. When I first got her, she was kind of the dog that I wanted, bit of a dream, saw her parents, both super, super dogs. And I'm like, yeah, she'll be cool. As a young puppy, when I saw saw her maybe once when she was five weeks and then six weeks and seven weeks. So I got her just before eight weeks. Yep. And previous to that, you're a Roddy guy. Yeah. Yeah. By by proxy, I think, with Kat. So we had four Rottweilers. And then through age, that kind of whittled down to two. So when we got puppy, she came into a house with two Rottweilers and a cat. Mm -hmm. The first probably thing that we noticed was Zuka kind of didn't like her at all and Zuka just loves puppies so that was a bit weird but 
it took me a little while to do anything with her. So I would offer her food and she just wouldn't take it. Not when, through when ill said, health. When you said Zuka didn't like her, like what was the what was the he was, he was seriously just like, get this thing away from me. Like didn't, he would just- Didn't he, try and bash her or anything or? Uh, nah, like he's never really bashed puppies. Mm. So he and wouldn't Z- really- Zuka is her Cat's off. Roddy. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Which yeah. is also known as Poo. Sexy Poo. Poo. Yeah. Yeah. Sexy Poos. Just to make things more confusing for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got Zuka and Zia, known as Puppy and Poo. Yeah. Perfect. Got it, it makes sense. Got it. So the first mm-hmm. sort of things for me was, you know, let's go and do some training she wasn't interested in food at all. So I would sit there and go, oh, well, okay, I'll come back and do training later. And then she still wasn't interested. And then she'd have five pieces of food and I would go, yeah, like we're in now. And then again, she'd stop eating. So I did the normal dog trainer thing of, well, I'll go and buy every treat on the market. Mm-hmm. Steak. They had like little veggie mite dog tablets. I'm like, she'll love those. And she'll, <laughs> gra- like, she'll grab food and she'll try one or two things. I'm like, yeah, right. This is a thing I'm going to, dessert feed yeah. and then she'd have like three things in stock and I'm like, fuck. So super frustrating for me. And the people who knew me for the first 12 months are like, dang, you're different, man. Like you're not happy. I'm like, no, this dog's shitting me. Mm. I went to a puppy school that I was running at the time and there was, I took puppy. She was maybe 10 weeks or something like that. There was a, a Spoodle, a Labrador, a Husky, and another mixed breed, sort of just a little guy. And I would have, on that night, I would have swapped all of those dogs for my dog. I went, she's just shit, not happy, not happy, not happy. Went home and I said to Kat, right, I'm taking her back tomorrow. I'd already spoken to the breeder and said, you know, I'm having this issue. And she's like, oh, we'll just see how you go if that's what you want to do. I went, yeah. I wanted a dog to that I was thinking about doing some dog sports with. Mm-hmm. And she just wasn't what I wanted. She wasn't giving me anything. Woke up the next day and I'm kind of like, all right, let's do a bit of work. You know, last request, let's try something. And she went out and she smashed it. And I went, <laughs> you got one more day. <laughs> <laughs> and then, yeah, the first 12 months was really up and down for me. And I think after maybe she was 13 weeks or 14 weeks or something. And I really decided at that time that with everything I do, she's my pet. She's not a sport dog. I need to treat her like that. And it also gave me... Something with my clients, with our clients, where they would have dogs with issues or, you know, oh, my dog doesn't take food. And I would sit there and I'd give them good advice. Mm-hmm. And it gave me that realization of, hey, dude, like you need to go through this too. You can mm-hmm. be in their shoes. You can be in the same boat as them. So tough it out. Don't just get rid of what <clears throat> the dog is. And I remember, Pat, you said to me one day, you don't get the dog you want, you get the dog you need. And mm-hmm. for me, mate, it was the truest word spoken. So- it took me a while and it's really funny me telling the story because about two weeks ago when I was hanging with Jay and, and Chad when they were at our place, Jay's talking about, you know, if a puppy or if a dog does something wrong, just be disappointed in it, you know? And yeah. I'm like, oh, I'm never being disappointed in puppy. I'm never telling those sad stories how I didn't like her ever again. So, yeah. And here I am a couple of weeks later telling them. But I love her now. She's a, she's a great little dog. But yeah, raising her for that, the first... 12 months was pretty tough. I remember, I do recall those conversations with you early in the time when you were telling me about her and she sounded so uncharacteristic of what a Malinois should be. Yeah. You know, like you'd tell me about her and I thought that just doesn't sound like what a Mal should be and what she came from as well, like her her lines and so forth. I mean, 
don't get me wrong, I don't profess to be an expert in males because it's not a breed I follow. Yep. I don't know about their lines like Pat and Sam and yeah. uh, and uh, other people like Sean. They know a lot about males. That's a yep. breed they've been working with predominantly for many, many years and have got very deep knowledge in who they are, what their characteristics should be. I'm not that guy. I yep. can tell you about shepherds and a lot more about Roddies, but certainly not about males. But I do know what males should look like. You know, I've seen working males. I saw some of the first ones that came in the country. I've seen the evolution of them as they've started to get better and better as there's been a more influx of them coming in. And every time you told me stories about puppy, I thought, that's just not what a male should be anywhere close to it. Yeah. And I remember those words from you. You come back and saying, mate, I'm just disappointed in her. She's just... Yeah. And you said to me the words, I just don't like her. Yeah. And for you to say that, because you're not a quitter in those type of things, mm. I thought there's something seriously wrong with the relationship between you and this dog, which was kind of fast forward that into six months later when we had another conversation about her and I was surprised to see that you still had her. Yeah. Then you came around and said, it's like she matured and all my problems with her went away. Yeah. And this is actually a frustration I've seen with other people with other puppies as well. Like Other people have had these who have stuck with it, who haven't just done the, the quick exchange, said, no, 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 it's not working, it's out. However, if you're in a, a line like Sean's um, where you're a working police officer and you need yep. the, the right type of dog, you can't afford to take that gamble. Yep. For you, it was a pet. Yep. For Sean, it's a lifestyle, you know, and you can't risk that happening. Yeah. yeah that's why most police departments are going to buy something that's going to be 12 months or older because they don't want to take that gamble. There's a lot of times that, I mean, not a lot of times, but I've seen enough where you have this super precocious young dog doing really well young and then next thing you know they're 12 months old and they woke up and they're a totally different dog yeah in the opposite way of yeah. yours yeah so i've seen it go both ways i've mm -hmm. seen several times where you have a dog that you're doing all the right things you're exposing this dog to so many different so many different stimulus and good ways and having good times with a dog and they have nice positive outcomes and then nothing's going nothing's working and mm -hmm. then hit 12 months 14 months and all of a sudden things just clicked and it's almost like a totally different dog the interesting thing when we spoke to you and janet on your actual podcast <clears throat> you were saying that you had something to do with lachlan air force base and so forth was that you yeah yeah steve Lindsay, who wrote the handbook of applied dog training and behavior and dr stuart hilliard who is someone you know he's been out here several times they were of the conclusion with the Superdog program that you couldn't determine from a puppy that that dog was guaranteed to turn out a certain way, which was what they were trying to conduct. If my memory serves me right, I'm pretty sure that that's what they concluded at the end of it, that the Volhard test determined that you could predict what a puppy was going to be somewhere around the, the seven weeks of age, whereas further studies from what they were doing in their program said it's undecided, it's still inconclusive until the dog starts to show you those behavioral <clears throat> aspects later on in life. Yeah, I mean, I think it's always a gamble, just how much of a gamble you're taking. I mean, if you have a dog that's been proven, you know, the parents are good, very good genetically, mm. and saving past litters, but either way, I still, still believe it's a gamble. I think that's how Pat chooses his dogs, though. Like, he knows the lines, where they've come from, mum, dad, sees them work, 
And then he just goes and gets the prettiest puppy there. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering where that was going. <laughs> <laughs> it's only funny because it's true, mate. You just it shot down Pat's whole fucking <laughs> story. I was like, where are you going? Because I've never bred a dog in my life. <laughs> um, Sam knows all that shit. So when we started training together, he knows more about bloodlines than I could ever yeah, dream to know. Unreal. And I remember thinking that there's no – I. If I studied from now till forever, I'll never know as much. So I know what I know, but I also know I know fuck all about real like old school bloodlines and that. But uh, yeah, I think. Um, <laughs> and that's important, you know, that is actually important mm-hmm. to identify with that. See? Yeah. Because there's a lot of people who proclaim to know a lot about dogs. And when it gets down to the nitty gritty of it, they don't know anywhere near as, as much as what they're alluding to. Yeah. That, well, that's problematic. I sort of decided a while ago that I, knowing the, the real big backstory of dogs is great if you can do it. But what's more relevant to me and if I'm going to focus my time and energy is knowing the dogs that are being bred at the moment mm-hmm. and what's available in Australia and who's breeding what here. Like, you know, when I was in Melbourne the other week, I saw Danchi and had a long talk with her about her dog. And it's more than just curiosity because, like, I know, first of all, I know that she knows what she's talking about when she refers to the dog. Because a lot of people that would tell you, oh, my dog's this and that, and they think it is, but it ain't. But I know she knows what she's looking at. And I also know her well enough to know that she will tell me the truth of the dog. And the dog's a police dog, so I'm never going to get to breed from that dog. But I now I know from that litter combination what it's likely to produce. I know, And I can work backwards. I can't work forwards on that dog because it's never going to be available for me or, or any other civilian to breed from. But I can understand that. And so for me, that's where my focus and energy goes to, like where dogs that I can actually see and what are likely to be around. And mostly because like I don't breed them, but I work them. Yeah. And I want to know, I want to be able to make predictions to people and, and that sort of thing. Like I I posted just the other day in that Australian Dutch Shepherd male in my group, I'm trying to source yeah. a puppy for a, a client at the moment. And it's the same deal I've said to him. He He's told me, he described, he's a Roddy guy, he's got a Roddy. Uh, and he described what the work he wanted to do with the dog. And I was like, you have to get a Malin life for that work. That I, I can't put my hands on a shepherd that will do that. They exist, but I can't put my hands on one. And I don't believe that's Rottweiler work is what you're explaining. And so now I'm sort of at the mercy of like finding one. I have to test them. And that's where knowing what's around is. And the guy I spoke to, he was really good. He knows what he's talking about, but he's explaining the long heritage back. And it's it's stuff I know a little bit, but then I can call people. He told me their father. All right, cool. I know who's worked that dog. I can call someone who's actually worked that dog and, and get honest opinions. So I think it's really important to know that mm. and then choose the prettiest one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's science, baby. Yeah. But the joke is that I have a very pretty dog and I don't care. That's that, a fair one that's wondering why that's funny. Yeah. Because I, my dog just turned out pretty looking. At least once a week I get a message from someone by email or Facebook or whatever wanting to use him for stud. And he hasn't done anything yet. I mean, he does have very good pedigree. Uh, he's not mine to breed from, so that's a Sam job. But I, as soon as people find out he doesn't have ANKC papers, they, they tend to run away. He is technically a mongrel. Which yeah. <laughs> Dang. What did you originally start telling people he was when they were asking you what breed he is? A Meckles herder. <laughs> yeah. Which is legit though, yeah? Yeah, he is a Meckles herder. It's just yeah. the that's just the Flemish name for a Malinois. Mm. And if you haven't guessed by now, Pat just likes deliberately trying to fuck people up. So <laughs> no, I, just, I enjoy like slightly misleading people and then watching them go down a rabbit hole. And then it wasn't long before after I started telling people that he was a Meckles herder that people were breeding Meckles herder. And I was like, oh, okay. But I think, yeah, but explain that. It's Malins 
is Malinois is the dog from Malins, and in Flemish, it's Mechelen. So it's yeah. the Mechel's herder. Same, same. Um, but these days, dogs like that, I think most people are just referring to them as Dutch herders, right? Just like mixed breed shepherd. Because, you know, both his parents are black. Certainly, and he certainly doesn't meet the breed standard, but he's pretty. Well, the remarkable thing is that all pedigree dogs came from mongrel breeds. Yeah, well, at some point, right? That's, that's right. I mean, until somewhere. they're recognised and there's lineage there that people start to find that it's important or there's a type to be developed, until that point of time that you get a pretty much a board of directors in a breed club coming together to say, hey, this breed's been around for quite a while. You know, it's now established as a breed and there's heritage to it and it can be traced back to this or that. They all start off as mongrels. Yeah. I mean, Kelpies were part dingo, so were blue healers, mm. but now they uh, they can be classified as a pedigree style of dog. Yeah. Well, I'm a pretty outspoken mongrel supporter. Mm. I just I prefer... I mean, not prefer. Valerie has a, a pedigree. It's not that I don't like pedigree dogs, and I usually recommend people do get them because you can get a better gauge of what you're after, but I just think that it's more important that dogs are bred on the basis of themselves rather than their pedigree. Um, well, the, the basis of, of working breeds is that the dog will actually follow through with work. Yeah. You know, and that, I mean, and the unfortunate thing with pedigree dogs is, and, and again, this is not slamming pedigree dogs, so don't read any nonsense into it. But the problem is, is that they're so encouraged not to breed through the selective breeding that people are actually doing with them. They're encouraged to look pretty. Yeah. Uh, and we've talked about that before. And again, that's not shit slamming anybody that we're... You know, we're not trying to make enemies by discussing this, but we're talking about the reality is there's a lot of dogs out there who are working breeds who won't work. They don't even understand how to do it before. They've been so far removed from that aspect in their life that they just can't do it anymore. Yeah. You know, you've got German Shepherds that don't know how to be, let alone a guardian breed, they wouldn't know how to be a a stock dog anymore. There's Mm. no none of that characteristic left in them. Some people think that's absolutely fantastic. They think, I don't want a German Shepherd who runs around the backyard looking for something to do, barking at the neighbours. They're quite happy that they've got a dog that looks like a German Shepherd but won't behave like one. I'm talking about this all the time. It's the second time I'll talk about it today. We were talking about earlier on that I think if someone's going to tell you the dog is suitable for whatever task, unless they're in that task, they don't know. It's not That's right, to guess. Yeah, and and so – you know, if you're like Springers, if people will tell you, you see, like I'm in the Springer group and you see people asking questions, oh, is it suitable for field work? And people going, yeah, 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 totally. He's a working line Springer. Okay, cool. Like what have the parents done? Oh, I don't work them. Well, how do you yeah. know? Like mm. there's just no way. You don't know what that is. And I'm quite sure that if, if you put those breeders on a lie detector, they would pass. They genuinely believe that the dog is suitable. They just don't know what that is. They don't know what is suitable. And so if you're breeding dogs... Like, I just don't like the idea of closing a door on whether a dog can be bred to another one because it doesn't have the right paperwork when if it is perfectly suitable for the breed and you've got the health and and all that. Like, yeah. like Remco has a BRN, right? So you can get online and you can trace him back to Tommy and Cora, the original Malinois. Like, it's not like it's an unknown. Yeah. He's a, like, I, I laugh and say he's a mongrel, but it's not he's like- He's got heritage. Yeah. Yeah. And, and mm. we can track it all the way back. It, yep. It's not like it's, um he's just a random dog. Mm. So I just don't, it just, it doesn't seem- intelligent to me to close the door on whether that kind of dog should be bred to another kind of dog because if they're if they're going to produce well why not do it that's that's my take we've got friends in new zealand down in christchurch so janice who we effectively call mama bear who came over you met her at tyler's seminar so she came over for that and they breed 
mm-hmm. Border Collie cross huskies and work them and then they, they run them in NZKC. Mm-hmm. And she's got trophies around the house from what her dogs have won. But they know all the parents. They know where these dogs have come from. They hip and elbow score all of them. Yeah. But they do it. And they, they breed them specifically for that. So like, how do they get away with competing in NZKC stuff? Are they allowed to do that or the dogs? They are, must be. Yeah. They must be. Because I know like to to be, to like compete in any ANKC stuff here, if your dog's intact, you can't do that. It must be. Yeah. They've got to be pedigree. They've got to be, they've got to pass the breed club requirements or they've got to be a neutered dog. Yeah. And, and be registered as an associate breed. Yeah. So I, I don't know, but the trophies on the wall and yeah, seeing right. the dogs, like you sit there and go, I'm sure it's an NZKC. Yeah, unless right. there's something a little I bit think there's a bit of, but yeah, I don't know. But the um, like they do an amazing, and as I say, like they hip and elbow score everything. They test them for every everything. Yeah, they breed them specifically for that. And yeah, well, as you say, good. every breed has to start somewhere. Yeah, they're, for sure. They're all mongrels at one point. And I don't know if she wants to make that a new breed, like I don't know, border ski or something. I don't know. <laughs> That's the most important part about making border, a breed. Border ski, you, it works. Giving it a cool name, yeah. or just naming it straight after yourself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think with the things like Rallyo, I think you're allowed to compete in that. Yeah. And yeah. have like uh, crossbreeds. Yeah. I'm not sure because I don't do Rallyo or anything like that. So if there is anybody listening and does compete in Rallyo and knows what the requirements are in their forum, uh, just throw it up there, what the facts are surrounding that. Again, like most of our podcasts, we don't profess that we're 100% legit on ownership of any of the facts. We're just having a loose conversation here. So it's not- Sean just got off a flight, for God's sake. That's right. He's he's dead man walking up his week. (laughs) All right. So I am- (laughs) Since you are here, Sean- I was thinking about that. Have you seen a- It's like a meme- you're gonna the, you're gonna throw to a Marvel no movie or no, something no, like no. that. No, no, no. When you're talking about the the crossbreedings, yeah. of, right? There's uh shows the different types of doodles, like, uh, <laughs> all the it. different types of doodles, and uh, you know what I'm talking. Yeah, about? I know yeah, the one says, you're I've come about. to the conclusion oh, that uh, we'll fuck, fuck anything. anything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you start talking about yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I'm I'm going to get back That's to the, the nuts and bolts. That's the my brain's going right now. <laughs> That's all right. That's fair enough. Poodles get all the blame. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to get I'm going to get back to the nuts and bolts of the conversation, Sean, and throw this one at you. <clears throat> and if you don't want to answer it or anything like that, I'll throw it back to me. But because <laughs> <laughs> I'm raring with a good answer, because I've got stuff. <laughs> no, no. Well, I'm just I'm just curious as to uh, your comments on it, but. Since you have been involved in police work with dogs, Mm -hmm. tell us a little bit about the selection criteria of what you're looking for. Because do you take them in as puppies or do you only take in juveniles or do you take it? No, I mean, you don't have the time to invest into it in the police department. Most, I mean, I'm not going to say there hasn't been any police departments. I'm sure there's got to be something out there that had a program that they wanted to try their own breeding program. In, but you've worked for Tar Heel, right? Where they do that type of thing, where they no, I didn't. I never worked for Tar. I went there to school. Um, Janet used to work for Tar. Right. Okay, okay. But, gotcha, um, gotcha. He trained there. Yeah. All right. Now, I, yep. Okay. Gotcha. So nine nine point nine percent of police departments, they're going to get a dog that's maybe ten months, the youngest, yeah, if not older. Because again, if you get a puppy, you're going to you know invest a bunch of time. And to be honest with you, most police dog handlers don't really know what they're doing as far as raising a dog. Ooh, we just so, lost all the police officers. <laughs> Sorry. No, but I, 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 that's <laughs> a bit of reality. They're, they're, they're handlers and, you know. Yeah, they're, no, that's they're, reality. There's some guys that do great jobs, but they 
don't know how to properly raise a puppy. Yeah. And so you're going to invest a year into a dog that you're ending up maybe possibly ruining. Yeah. So, and I think that's totally like, that's legit. Well, that's fair. I don't know how to build a gun. I'm, yep. I'm very good at using one. If something goes wrong, I can get it working again, but I can't start from scratch and build one. So yeah. it's not um, an unreasonable no, thing to not. say. No, it's not. I think it's, I actually think that's intelligence in departments to realize that the semantics and the logistics of trying to get a puppy raising program off the floor and then make the officers responsible for it is it's probably vastly overlooked. I think that's something that they really need to go back to professional organizations such as Tar Hill or anybody else who's involved in the raising of that has the time the resources and the staff to be able to dedicate to that and have people who do make sound judgment on whether or not that pup's going to cut the program or whether it should be sent to a pet home. Because there's a lot of people who still insist, and I have seen this before, where departments want to do a puppy program, they've got people involved in it. Look, if you've got a separate department that that is their role, like they raise care and develop the puppies in-house and then at a later stage, they have an education program where officers are matched with their dogs. I think that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But the time and resources it takes as compared to going to an outside civilian-based company or whatever it may be, where they go in there, have a look at the dogs, and primarily, I think what Jerry's doing is actually really cool. I actually like the fact that he runs training <clears throat> programs on site, matches people up with their dogs. They get to actually spend time working in a program together and then are sent back to their department with a working canine. That must seem really normal to you. We don't have that here, Sean. No, so. that's like, that's typical. And, yeah. you know, Tar Heel. Yeah, that's cool. That's a really well uh, Obviously, where Janet and I, you know, start our, well, I started in Air Force, but it's where Janet started her canine career. And it's primarily where I learned the most useful knowledge about the canine world was at Tar Heel. But there's a lot of vendors in the U.S. that a police department can go and either go to or sometimes have them come to you and they show you dogs. And every every police department has probably their own type of selection testing. So you'll go through there. Some departments, I'm sure if you had Jerry on here, he can tell you some well, some, we of, some, of the, some of the crazy things that uh, some departments do or don't do in their uh, selection. But, yeah, I mean, that's obviously the most efficient way to do it. Yeah, so we just... We don't have that model here at all. Mm-hmm. Like, so all the police departments, they get their dogs from basically anywhere. They like are buying puppies, buying adult dogs and breeding their own. Most are breeding their own as well. Um, because it's, they can't turn off for any avenue of getting a dog because it's so hard to get a suitable one that however it will come to them, they'll take and they try to create their own, but it's all in-house training. They might bring in a civilian trainer to help them, but then you're employed by them. They're not coming to you. Um, so it's a totally different model to what is the norm in the States, which, mm. and I think that, you know, it'd be a big, big cultural shift, but I think that if we could set up schools here doing that, it would be, it, I mean, it'd be awesome for me as a civilian yeah, to sure. offering yeah. that sort of thing. Well, I mean, you're also, I mean, I guess it's a little bit different here as far as <clears throat> importing dogs is as easy That's the killer. as, mm. cause you don't have rabies or other yeah. uh, diseases. So, you know, the country's trying to, trying to keep it, uh, yeah. Yeah, maintaining our quarantine laws yeah. is super important, and I 100% support it. But fuck, it is a pain in the ass. It right. makes makes bringing in dogs so difficult and expensive. Yeah, I and, mean, just think about the dog that I mean, say dog doesn't work out for whatever reason. Yeah, you know, I mean, shipping the dog back or yeah, well, I it's mean, been not, not an option. It's not an option. Yeah, and so that's what like that's a problem. If you say you buy a dog in Europe, 
it's six months before or roughly six months before you can bring him out. If you don't know someone who can keep taking him to the club and because once you've bought him, you've paid for him, it's not right. the guy's job anymore. So if you don't know someone who can keep him working, he's in a box in quarantine and goes crazy. And, and the chances of a dog that's just spent six months in a kennel not getting worked by anyone turning terrible. up and, and doing well yep. and they're a young dog at that point, you buy as a green dog, 10 months old, he then spends six months locked in a kennel, no interaction because he's no one's dog, no one cares. I mean, that... that- I mean, it could help. Like to, yeah. <laughs> He'd like to think that, you know, a nice genetically yeah. groomed dog is, is, is going to be fine. But I mean, there's no guarantee. They yeah. could have some bad experiences in there and then ruin them for life. Yeah. So I know like even from, from my observation of dogs that get imported in the country, it's still 50-50 really, like whether they, they work out. And these are dogs that get tested and esteem suitable at one end. And six months later, uh, it's a... To do, yeah, it could be a different dog, and it is. It's six months. It's six months is a long time for to pass. I mean, that, that dog might have changed exactly as we we're talking about before. He might have had that change in himself, regardless of what was happening. That's totally possible. Yeah, me, I like <clears throat> the dogs coming from from overseas. I like to test them like the day after they get off the plane, mm-hmm. and then each day after that, like yeah. three days in a row. You could really tell a lot about a dog in those three days. Mm-hmm. There's sometimes where there may be one dog I thought was the best one out of the group, and maybe he just they, traveled. Yeah, down. he just no, he did well, but then all of a sudden these other two or three have really come along in the next couple of days. Say they'd never been exposed to stairs or certain threshold or dark rooms. They just might not have been exposed to it. So the first time they go through it, they might not look as as great. Mm-hmm. However, their nerves are actually better, and they they might have been studied at first, but they've overcome that very quickly compared to the dog that might have looked better first. Yeah. Make sense? Yeah, 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 totally. Yeah. And that's an important thing that people have got to come to terms with is that it's okay for a dog to show a nervous response to something. What we're looking for in any type of strong sports activity or service role is I don't mind if the dog has a reaction to something, what is predominant and what must be considered is how does the dog recover to it? Right. How long is the recovery yeah. type? Like if that dog is showing resistance or like a lag time in recovery, you've got to ask yourself, if this was to happen, if I was out in the street, when it counts, how long is it going to take the dog to get over it? Well, like, and that's the other thing, like I was saying, Jerry, I've heard so many horror stories just because, you know, he's the main vendor I know, but there's so many, uh, several departments that are famous for getting these dogs. They're doing very well green off the plane. And then, you know, they might've had a problem going through a threshold instead of training it properly, mm-hmm. showing it to them properly. They force something or use some ludicrous technique that there's no way <laughs> it's going to help anyone. And then they turn the dog over and say, this dog, this dog's broke. And yeah. in reality, it mostly broke the dog. Broke yeah. And then, you know, the vendor has to spend a bunch of time fixing that problem that was compounded by you know, it might have just been, hey, I have to use, uh, get the dog in a lower drive or, you know, do whatever they have to do to get the dog to go through a threshold, go in a dark room, upstairs, downstairs, whatever the case may be, mm-hmm. using a nice, safe technique. Yeah, teach it. And teach it, mm. get them through it instead of ruining a dog. And then the vendor stuck yeah. trying to fix it. <laughs> yeah. And that that's what's so scary about selling any dog is that you could get, you could ruin the best dog in 10 minutes. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, and so you just don't know. Once you <laughs> hand it over, you're hoping that nothing crazy happens that then is out of your control as the vendor to, of the dog. Mm. It's very, it's it's a scary thing to do. Is there anything that, like, so I know the cookie, you've kind of bred quite a few dogs and that sort of thing with what you do. Mm. What sorts of things do you do to 
mitigate that as much as you can. So, I mean, you can only interview people as much as you can and where you're placing dogs, but what sorts of things do you work through I, with that? I think if I had the answer to that, I'd be a millionaire. Yeah, okay. The, the reality of that is I think what you've got to do when you're doing that transfer from breeder to handler is I call it the breeder handshake. Okay, it's the or it's the it is the handshake between you and the person who's going to take on that dog, and the, the what you're basically saying to them is they've got to trust you as the breeder first and foremost. Is that you've done your job correctly, like you've paired the mating well, you've fed the female on nutrition, like you've you've had a, a good thing about nutrition, you've thought about everything, all the precursors before puppies even hit the ground. So they're they're having faith in you that you've done that part. Then they're also having faith in you that. After the initial weaning period where you kept the the dam safe and you stopped her from enduring stress and so forth, so she didn't have excessive cortisol levels which were then passed on to the puppies or she wasn't displaying fear-based behaviours in front of the pups which were then transferring to them as a subsidial behaviour from there, that then what you're looking for is that the breeder has actually taken the dogs out, the puppies out, and gently exposed them to the world around them. That they've had that critical period development or the initiation of it because it's still ongoing during the the handshake. And that's the problem is that they're just coming into that point of awareness where they're developing an understanding, a greater understanding of self and environment while that whole transference is taking place. So while that's taking place, what you've got to do is the very best that you possibly can to try and make those pups as hardy as you possibly can by the time they hit around about eight weeks of age. Then from there, it is your responsibility to educate the buyer of the pup, to say to them, okay, here's what you have to do. From here on in, you have to... People have said to me, okay, I need, I really need to get involved in obedience school. I said, you don't really need to get involved in obedience school. What you need to get involved in is the school of life. Okay, from here on in, what the most important thing, I said, if you're going to do a sport or anything like that, then yeah, the the elementary skills of, of you know, shaping behaviors is cool. But the most important thing, the thing that's going to really compound how far you're going to go with this dog is that the dog learns to be, um, it doesn't matter, female or male, it doesn't matter. What matters is that that dog, learns to be fearless in any environment, that that dog learns that cars aren't scary, that people aren't scary, that other animals aren't scary, that environmental conditions or building sites or anything, different locations, smells, anything that the dog encounters, none of it is scary. It's all manageable, okay? And as I said before, they're allowed to have reactions to things. But what we've got to look for is how do they recover to it? They're really the bones or the construction kit of what you start with a puppy and what you transfer over into what it's going to develop into from there. What is outside your control is abuse from the buyer or some sort of misfire in the genetic sequence of the dog that something happens as a recessive that you have no control of. And that is very possible. I've seen pups before that you think, and this is, I think this is primarily, and I could be wrong, but I think this is primarily what they found in the Superdog program in Lachlan Air Force Base, is that you can see all the benefits of this puppy from when you had it, but then suddenly something goes wrong from there. Now, there could be issues with uptake in nutrition, which can also have an effect on brain development. And there are so many things. I mean, it could be chemicals that is going into the dogs at certain periods of time there are a lot of factors that you have to consider now it's a at some stage it's a bit of a shake of the dice of what's going to come out as an adult you're never guaranteed 
However, with ethical people that do have ethical breeding programs and are doing all the ethical things, I know I've said that three times now, but they're all the key fundamentals. If they are looking at the genetics of the dog, the parents, the grandparents, and what they were used for, bred for, what they've been producing, and being honest with themselves and about what happened in the past and were there any issues, that some timidity or you know undue aggression, was the grandfather excessively aggressive? Did they have problems with that? Was that throwing off in offspring? If they're, if they're true to themselves and their breeding program and they work on eliminating that, or some people might say, you know what, that is a problem, that is a byproduct of producing these two dogs together. But the reality is, is that these dogs are super dogs for military or police. Uh, and we have to live with that aggression side of it, okay, with, with other dogs. It's manageable, but we prefer it not to be there. But these are not dogs for pet homes. Yep. You know, these are, these are truly working dogs for working environments. If you get people like that who do develop ethical programs, then you get the right dogs in the right people's hands. Yep. Yeah, it makes sense. Pat, <laughs> <laughs> I was just thinking. I agree with all of that. It's yeah. it's that you just don't know. You don't know that you just don't know how it's going to go. And so many dogs change after teething. You just don't know. M- Mother it's Nature a, is unpredictable. It's such a gamble, and that's that's the problem we face in Australia. Is like you know being in Ireland and talking about. That's what I was thinking about as you were just sort of mentioning that. Is as a person, I like to breed and I like to be, not breed but be involved in the breeding and, and raising of working dogs it's mm. such a tricky environment in Australia because I was just thinking about what you said like okay I'm going to breed these dogs but they're only suitable for police and military well like how are you going to sell them to them they might not need them like it's just it's such a tricky thing to do here we don't have it's such a small market there isn't a lot of people that need dogs like that and that's the issue a lot of people will say are really into breeding like a really hard dog well because they want one mm-hmm. but then there's 10 in the litter, what the fuck are you going to do with the rest of them? Because most people can't handle that. That's a very good point. It's um, a very valid point. And it's always been the point that kind of worries people around about the breeding and the development of working dogs. Yeah. And like, so, you know, I don't want to speak for him. We, should, we need to get him on the show to talk about it one day. But like Sam breeds dogs to create his own dog. He's just trying to create a dog for himself. It's not like it's anyone that thinks, and please listen, if you're in Australia, if you're breeding dogs because you think you're going to make money out of it, you are fucking wrong. It is not going to happen, especially in the working dogs. If you think you're going to breed dogs and make a profit and make money like you can live off of by raising and selling, you are wrong. You are not going to do it. Breeding ethically. Yeah. There might be one or two people that have a business that can provide that, but and even then, that income from that business is not sustainable. If you have a cost-neutral hobby, you are killing it. You You are way above the average if you have a cost-neutral hobby in breeding dogs. We had a litter of shepherds going back about three, four years ago now, and the whole litter, when they got to about four weeks of age, a mystery disease hit them and wiped the whole litter out. Yeah, and that happens on the reg, right? So we had to AI the female to start with, so that's 1500 bucks plus proj tests, which are about uh, $150, $200, depending on where you go. Proj test, for anyone that doesn't know, is you're measuring progesterone levels in the female to find out when it's suitable for a mating to take place, especially when you're doing AI because there's different considerations that have to take place. So we're already hit with those costs. So three progesterone tests. So let's say, let's say five, 600 bucks plus the AI itself, which is about 1500 bucks. 
then the time and energy of the people who are involved in helping you out. So there's costs involved in that. That's where, that's the killer. Yeah. That's what people don't understand because you can go, you can add up all these. People don't think about that. No. They don't put a value to the to time. Their time. Yeah. You can add up all these costs and it'll still be a few thousand dollars and then you can sell puppies for a few thousand dollars each and mm. maybe you got 10. So you might turn over 30 grand and have 10 grand in outgoing. So you look at it and go, wow, 20 grand. But if you do it properly, the amount of time, $20,000 is if I, <laughs> I need you to not sleep for, for eight weeks or whatever. Like it's, it's not good money. It's terrible, terrible money that and you can do once a year or it, twice a year. It's actually just sidestepping slightly for a minute. I was talking to somebody about the whole concept of private lessons in being a dog trainer. And, you know, like some people think that charging 300 bucks to go out and do a private lesson is like, oh, that's a lot of money. It's not. When you consider it's your car. Your petrol, yeah. it takes an hour to drive to the client's home, an hour to be with the client, then an hour home. That's three hours. Okay. So that's already like, then you look at it and go, oh, it's still $100 an hour. That's good money. But then you've got to uh, answer all the emails leading up to the sale, the phone calls, which you've got to do, and all the time that you're actually on it. When you break it all down, the reality is it's probably about less than what you'd earn hourly to work in Bunnings. Yeah. And you still haven't accounted for the, t- the five or 10 years you spent educating yourself. Yeah. The yeah. seminars that you travel to, right. the all of those sorts of things. A yeah. lot of training on your own time. Yeah. Figuring yeah. it out. It's, um, so, I mean, if you're doing those back to back and you've got, like you've gone from one client to another one who was 10 minutes away, if you're doing some things like that back to back, yeah, there's good value in that. But driving all the way down there and then driving all the way back, and that was your like one or two lessons that you've done yeah. for the day, there's not a lot of fat in that. Mm. Yeah. And it's the same thing with puppies. I mean, there's been litters that we've – and again, we've bred dogs that we're breeding our own stock, you know, our own pets and so forth and dogs that we want to keep. And we've had litters where we've suffered enormous loss from, from the litter. You know, we've looked at it at the end and gone, well – that was a very expensive exercise where we could have bought the puppy from another breeder and probably been six to $10,000 better off. Yeah. And so that leads back to, as I was saying, and this is what's that the only people I want to get a dog from is people who are trying to create a dog for themselves. Mm-hmm. And there's more that, that are also born. That's the only people that I'm interested in. So like Alex, who Val is from, he competes in gun dog trials yep. and so he breeds dogs for gun dog trials and i wanted a field springer so he's the guy i go to and mm. he's just creating more dogs it's not like he's got like uh, there are people out there with the sickness like I, they breed whatever you put in front of them right like yeah. they're they're breeding their their fish and their guinea pigs and whatever but most good breeders are just like i want a good one mm. and in order to produce that i get as many other are in the litter and now i sell those that's yep. the only breeder i want to want to deal with People who are working to do it for the creation of a better dog, not just the the creation of money, because which comes under ethics. Exactly, mm. exactly. So, as I say, and it just isn't, especially in working dogs. It, it if I say it all the time. I know in other countries it's totally different. In different parts of the world, different standards. There's a million variables, but in Australia. If you think you're going to make money out of breeding and selling working dogs, you're wrong. You're not. You, If you have a cost-neutral hobby, you are killing it. You are doing a great job. That said, I mean, for anyone, people probably like, ah, fuck you, I'll make heaps of money. People who are doing it well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so put that in your cap. 
So yeah, you really just shafted everyone then, didn't well, you? Well, no, because I don't believe that anybody is making money from it. Like you just, you, you just, there just isn't people who like. There's loads of people breeding puppies really nicely in Australia, doing a really good job of it. Yeah, and they're hemorrhaging money doing it, but they do it because they enjoy it. Mm-hmm. It's not like their dogs are impossible to find. They're hard, but they're they're there. But as I say, there's no one that's like rolling, making mad bank, turning up in their Lamborghini from breeding puppies. There was that guy was in Adelaide with the, I think he was breeding staffies or something. Am staffs maybe, and he had like a big black four wheel drive rig. Like, I think he was on like a current affair at one stage too. I think he was doing all right, but I don't yeah. know if it was just from the dog. So, <laughs> <laughs> but he was going all right with it. But like I said, I mean, there's <laughs> in in designer dogs, maybe like, in cats too. Yeah, so. maybe. But in designer dogs, oh my god, you can make you make a living easily yeah, sure. and still do it really ethically. I know yep. people doing that breeding like designer dogs that people pay a fortune for, and then I see the dogs getting sold for twelve thousand dollars for yeah, a puppy and i think man. what am i doing yeah. i'm in the wrong i'm in the wrong game yeah um, and that's fine too i got nothing against that if you if you can make a living out of doing that but those dogs it's as i say it's easier to breed a dog for looks than it is for temperament however in saying that all the animal welfare laws are now being scrutinized yeah. and coming under yeah. review so i think people are going to find that side of their business a little bit more difficult than what it used to be. Yeah. Considering I've got some insider knowledge on that. And mm. Dogs New South Wales have pretty much come up to said that their whole breeding system is under review at the moment. So it's no secret. Well, yeah. in America, there's like, I personally don't believe the normal, you know, person that wants a dog, doesn't have a reason, or just wants a dog for a dog, shouldn't have a mouth. Um, yeah. I mean, for many reasons. And in the US, especially, I'd say probably early 2000s, like, I think there was a lot of people just backyard breeding mouths and mm-hmm. just putting genetically crappy dogs out there. And it's like, it's bad for the owner, you know, and then it's, you're going to have an influx of dogs going to the pound and so on. And just a bunch of problems. Mm-hmm. I mean, Are you saying you, that they shouldn't be pets? Is that what you're saying? I think the general person that just wants one for a pet. No, they shouldn't. Yeah. Because they, I, need, I they, need, they need to work. Yeah. yeah. I, um, I support that. But I that's the same that. for any working breed, really. Like you see like a, a serious working Rottweiler, you don't want old Bob down the road having that dog. The funny thing is in America, I'm gonna, I'm gonna the rats Bob are you totally said that. He different. Old, old Bob knows where we are, so that, that's interesting come on one. down, Bob. That's an interesting one Sean just said because at the trial we had here last year, we had two Rotties, two Rotties do the PDC. Right. And you got you were shocked at that, right? Cause yeah, I mean, there's uh, there's been a couple – when I say a couple, I mean like two. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> so that I've, that I've seen myself that were, you know, decent working protection dogs, that Rottweilers. Yeah. And like I'm sure any other dog you've seen, oh, someone says, oh, no, my dog's just too hyper. Or they describe yeah, yeah. things that the dogs really are not. Yeah. Uh, or the dog's flighty. Or he's like, he's seen butterflies when it's just nerves or whatever. Yeah. You know? Anyway, when I saw the rots here, I was like, all right, well, this should be interesting. Yeah. Because, you know, in America, even people say one thing or the other, and then the dog's, you know, crap. And mm-hmm. then your guys' rots are pretty good. Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> Neville, he formerly was the president. He's not anymore, is he the president of the Rottweiler Club? No. But he breeds excellent rotties. Yeah, yeah they're really nice. Yeah. His rotty tank is, uh, if I was going to, like, he, I'll put him in one of the, the, Category of the best dogs I've ever seen, no matter the breed. He's a great dog. Works in prey, super clear, can crush you. Yeah. <laughs> and is very friendly. Yeah, yeah super, super stable. Like he is, he is the epitome of a family dog that could – like you, you watch him work and, and you can't not be 
or inspired by the intensity of the dog, and yet that dog will cuddle up with your children quite safely. Well, and we'll even, like, we've got photos of him after I've worked with him, doing a hard session together. Laying yeah, on the I ground. Think I was cuddling. I think after yeah. a trial, I was hanging out with yeah. him and playing with him and, and stuff. like, still in my suit, laying on the floor, yeah. both of us recovering, yeah. kind of looking at each other like, geez, that was nice hard. Nice, clear-headed. <laughs> yeah. But let's be clear about something. Any good dog worth its weight, that, that should have the ability to drop the, the issue there and then and mm-hmm. be able to, what am I trying to say? They, the dog should be able to be calm enough and they understand things in context. They know this yes, is a yeah, time. Yeah, and yeah. it's contextual. Shown. That's what I'm trying to make. And that should be, but it, it isn't. That should be the case, but it often is not. And mm. and in, in Neville's dog, it certainly is. And yep. like he is, well, as I say, by any standard, he's a great dog, no matter, without naming breed, he's as good as I think a dog can be. Look, I understand in a military application where people would say, that's not suitable for the type of dog I want. I don't want my dog to be cuddling up at the feet of children and stuff like that. I want my dog to be on Oh, you, w- you won't find anyone in the military that says that. Like, it, especially in the SF guys, a civil dog is a headache. I mean, this is something, it's a great one that Mike Suttle talks about a lot and when we eventually yeah, get him on. If you can't be, if you can't, <clears throat> if other people can't be right up on your dog. Um, yeah. Well, if they yeah. can't feed I mean, your dog there's some, away, listen, or... there's some dogs that are just always super serious. They just don't want to get pet even by the the yeah. handler. That's, no, no, that's no, something don't get me wrong. Totally no, I'm not saying that the, yeah. the dog should be wired all the time and should right. be aggressive all the time. But uh, that, I mean, some people just don't want their dogs but, yeah, I get going over to people and being their best friend. They just yeah, don't right. want that application. Well, I think that's also just comes with training. I mean, it is. Dogs will to learn behavior. They, yeah, they're gonna. There's certain dogs, especially that once they see, oh, I'm about to get pet, they're gonna try to do something. Yeah. To get pet. So it's, you know, training too. But, but in the military environment, it's what a lot of people aren't aware of. It's different from any security or whatever. The dog works in team environment. He has right. to work for whoever tells him to work. He can't mm. be that bonded to his handler. Mm. Not can't be. It's just a headache when they are. There's plenty of civil military dogs that will kill anyone except their handler. And I mean, literally kill anyone except their handler. But that's not the preference. That That's a almost a pain in the ass to deal with. Mm. And I've heard Mike say it, like he's, the first thing is a dog must be social. If it's not social, it can't sell it. Yep. And I agree with that it, because like imagine in a, a dog's working for a platoon. Well, if you're swapping out handlers, yeah. it's not well, going to work. Yeah. I mean, I've, not even- I've never done with special forces or even, you know, just besides military police, but I've worked with SWAT teams with it and yeah. they need, the dog needs to be up close and personal with everyone. Yeah. So. Mm. And, and work for whoever tells him to work because you might like the handler, especially the hand. I mean, in a lot of SF units now, the handlers are, the actual shooters, but it's often they're not. They might be brought in. They're just dog handlers. They're yep. not shooters. And so they don't get to go forward. The dog does. And the, they command the dog. And then the dog has to also take direction from one of the shooters who's up close. And mm. if the dog is like, no, no, I'm a one-man show. I work for that guy. Nail everyone else. Can't work in that environment. But that's even in situations, in right situations for police forces or military, whatever the application may be, that when they are doing something like a, like they've got the shields and battens out, uh, you need to make sure that the dogs aren't going to come and start nailing your own police officers yeah, totally. on the way through. That yeah. The dog is clear about its application, what it's there for and what it has to yeah. do. But again, that's learned behavior. That's part of the training that's program right. yeah, the yeah, dog totally. should be subjected to. Where that some I've heard guys explain it is they say like the handler is dad, but everybody else is is your uncle. Like yep. and you got to work together. Yeah, that's, that's a good description. It's a good it. description for it. it. But like I sort of think of it as, and what ends up happening in my experience is, once a dog realizes we're a pack hunting together, 
that's where it comes. That's where like anyone that will lead me to success, I will listen to. It all clicks for the dog. Yeah. Well, they're like, they just want to bite people. So they want to yeah. find people and bite them. Yeah. And so right. you're giving them the, whoever's I'm, giving the reward will take it. Yeah, yeah. that's right. So if, if he's my dog, but Sean's saying there's a bad guy in there, you're not going to yeah, not yeah, yeah. listen to Sean because he's going to, he's leading to success. So um, Cookie, you spoke before about the early development and the things that you kind of want to do. So exposure. Yeah. Is that kind of one of the keys for you? Definitely. I think that that is the key. That is the key. Yeah. And it's a a huge lack of responsibility and possibly intelligence and education for you not to do that. If you're going to breed dogs, I don't have any problems with anybody taking up breeding with dogs. I I don't have an ethical issue with that, provided that you do go and get an education on what to expect and how to do the best by not only the dam that's going to whelp the pups, but also the well-being of the puppies from there on in. You're predominantly looking at this for a long-term aspect, and that involves the welfare of the dogs from that point in. So if somebody comes to you and says, I can't look after this dog anymore, can you help me out? As a breeder, I think you should show some obligation to that person to say, yeah, I'll try and help you rehome that dog. We'll, we'll work as a team to try and find the right environment for that dog to go into. So back into that, into your original question in regards to the environmental aspect, if you're not taking that into consideration, that's a massive violation. That's a massive violation of your ethical standards as somebody who's partaken in breeding a dog. Yeah. Well, one of the things we say a lot is, as opposed to exposure, we sit there and say, go and build the confidence of the dog Mm. or the puppy. Because people kind of understand that. And they're like, what do you mean? It's like, get it on stuff, around stuff, under stuff. You know, like it's confidence building. Mm. I think that's, for us, it's one of the things that we say a lot. And it's, people understand it really clearly. Like, oh, exposure. It's like, oh. Yeah, but he's outside all the time. And yeah, that's no, no, it's not that sort of exposure. Like, it needs to be- Stimulation. Yeah. But but build his confidence or build Mm. her confidence and stuff. Yeah. I'm like a broken record and I'm sure people are sick of me saying it, but all I care about in puppies is making them strong. Yeah. Teach them everything else later. Everything's a good experience. Yeah. That's yeah. that's it. And that's why I like I like flexi leads so much and I yeah. put the puppy on a harness and we walk on a flexi lead. So he feels free. You're not contained yeah. by me. You go out and experience, just do whatever, like yeah. have a good time, just get to know everything. And the problem with a lot of people then want to train obedience out there, but you're not exposing because you're keeping the dog in drive on you with for food. I want the yeah. dog just out. And mm. if, if he if he looks yeah. sketchy, that's where my food comes yeah. out because now I can change the emotion around what you're seeing. Oh, and that's why I have my clicker loaded yeah. with, with like dynamite. So if I'm out there, the dog looks, sees something like, oh, I'm a bit unsure about that. Click, bang, here's the yeah. food. Now you love that thing in it like straight away. And then I'll teach stuff later. It's just when I see people out doing work on the street, they're training their puppy. I'm like, that's great. It's awesome that you're doing that. But it would be better for the dog if you just sat there and had a brew. Hey, here's the point. Here's a a good catch point on all of this. You get plenty of time to make up the obedience. You'll never get it again if you fuck up the critical period. That's right. You'll never get it again. So you get multiple shots. You can reshape behavior over and over and over again throughout the life of the dog. And we've proven this. Yeah, like with sure. Harley, we've we yeah. trained him in a system, untrained him not to do certain skills, retrained him in a certain system. But the good thing is, is that dog had the bones of what he needed to do to be able to cope with that. Had he not have had the bones to do that, had he have not have had that critical period development, then none of that would have been achievable. The dog would have crumbled. He would have had issues with it. And you would have seen it. He would have uh, had anxiety and stress through what we were trying to achieve through training. When the dog does have that, and 
I may have said this before in a previous podcast. I know I say this a lot to people over the past, but when I was an electrician, I screwed up a, a job once because I measured out a certain amount of cable. So we used to do what's called control wiring for refrigeration cases. So I pulled out some cable one day and I cut it all up. I went to fit it all off and realized I'd cut all the cable way too short. And the guy that I was working with, who was my mentor, he came up to me and I was really shaken up by it. Like I thought, I'm going to get killed. I'm probably going to lose my job because it's a lot of cable that I pulled out. And we're able to resurrect a lot of it and fix it. But he pulled me aside and instead of yelling at me, he could see I was upset. So he said, mate, let me just tell you something. You can always cut some off, but you can never cut some on. Mm. And he said, that's not just about measuring cable. That's just about life. And I've never forgot that from the time I've been a young guy on, on an apprenticeship to right now working and developing puppies and even people, staff, you name it. I have always thought about that concept because it's exactly the same as what we've just been referring to with the raising and development of young puppies through the critical period is you can never add it on once it's not there. Yeah. It's gone and it's gone for good. Yeah, great. I, I remember you telling that story years ago to me and I'm like, I've, and I've never forgotten it. So yeah, it's a great story. It's a good one. <laughs> I'm looking at the time and I'm looking at my watch and I want to go train some dogs. So I reckon that's a good place to, to wrap it to up. wrap it up. Anything else from you, Sean? Nope. Nope. Just looking forward to seeing everyone this weekend. Glad to be here and uh, ready to train some dogs and uh, have some fun. Oh, oh, by the way, Deadpool decoy in the house. Yeah. Didn't say it before at the Giddy start of the podcast. Yeah. And uh, he's here for Flat Cat Friday tomorrow. Flat Cat Friday. Yeah. When he walked into the house this morning, because I've been ta- I've been showing rip photos of you in the Deadpool outfit, and I was like, hey, Deadpool's coming. And he's like, what's, because he's into superheroes at the moment. He goes, what's his name without the mask? <laughs> uh, and I'm like, Sean, because you know, he knows that like Tony Stark is, when he's not Iron Man. And he, as soon as Sean walks to the door, he's like, oh, no mask. It's like, Sean. <laughs> I'm surprised he didn't go, oh, very disappointing. No, but then he didn't want you to put the mask you go, on. Don't story. put the mask on. Don't put the mask on. <laughs> I was like, I got you one mask. Yeah, here. and he wouldn't put it on. Yeah. Anyway. All right. Well, I don't know if this is going to be out in time. It's If you're around this weekend, what is the date of this weekend? Is the second and third? I don't know if, if it's out or what. I will make efforts to get it out. Cool. It's not too late to come and find out about PSA. Train, it's a training day seminar, workshop. Just come and have fun with Sean. He's going to show us about the game. We're going to train dogs. We're going to have an awesome time. So if you want to come and get involved in that, shoot me a message, shoot the page a message, whatever. Even if you're listening to this on Saturday morning, turn up. We've, it's, it's a very flexible, open environment. We want to get as many people involved as we possibly can. And if it's past the weekend, well, you missed out. Sorry. <laughs> Brent, how can people get in contact with you? Instagram, Brent Dry Dog Trainer, or follow us, the Canine Company, uh, on Facebook. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks very much. Sean. And also, so, sorry, before we cut away from Brent, thank you very much, mate. I know we did in the forums, but I really appreciate you offering up the D Town vest and that you oh, yeah. also carry the D Town apparel. So, same yeah, for you. people who want to get onto it and get themselves a good vest or a training hoodie or something like or that. Or both. You can double D. You can double yeah, D. Yeah, you, Pat, you can Pat D rocks down. a double D very, very well. So oh, yeah, double, <laughs> double, D, double D style. It's good. <laughs> Nothing wrong with a double D. <laughs> Sean, how can people get in contact with you? Do you want them to? Nah. No. <laughs> Do something bad in Baltimore. Yeah, just break, yeah. break the law and you'll, you'll find Sean. Yeah. All right, that's it for another episode of the Canine Paradigm. As always, if you like what you're listening to, jump onto whatever subscription service you download us from, like, rate, share, tell a friend, all of that. And if you want to get in contact with us, the best way to do that is via Facebook. We are the Canine Paradigm. Can I do this part? You can sing us out. Glenn, cue the music. Oh.